Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. If you're new here, my name's Brian. I'm one of the elders of Grace Fellowship Church. And we are finishing up a sermon series, as Warren mentioned, going through our church principles. In other words, what is it about us that, that makes us who we are as a church? What animates us? Why do we do what we do? We started that series by looking at the scriptures as the foundation for how we live and who we are. We looked at the idea of grace and how important it is to, to live without missing the grace of God, that, that grace that makes us right with God. We talked about fellowship and what it means to have fellowship with God and with one another, and we're rounding things out in this series about grace and fellowship by talking about the church. <clears throat> the, uh, the question of the church has a lot to do with identity. And as I was thinking about identity... Identity, of course, has to do with what makes you who you are, what makes you unique. And I don't know about you, but I have kind of mixed feelings about being unique. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes you like to stand out from others. But, you know, other times you don't. And one of those times for most people is when you're in middle school, right? Uh, as much as you talk about finding your own style, uh, anything that makes you stand out from the group can be quite terrifying. And for me, probably my most unique physical characteristic, just having red hair, it's something, if someone's describing me, that's usually the first thing they'll say. I, I really didn't like that when, when I was in middle school. I, I appreciate it now, but then there were a lot of times that, that I would just rather look like everybody else. And so all those, the comments I would get from like well-meaning women who would, who would, oh, isn't it adorable or things like that. <laughs> just, uh, didn't appreciate that very much. I would rather just not have anything draw attention to me. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you'd rather just kind of fade into the crowd instead of standing out? Well, in the text that we're going to read today, Jesus gives the church a commission to stand out, to be different. This is in Matthew chapter 5. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, in your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read that for us, and then we're going to read the church principle that draws from it. So here, look for what Jesus says to the people who are following him uh, about their identity and about uniqueness. Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So you saw there these two images of identity that Jesus gave to the church. Now let's look at the, uh, the church principle, which is printed on the back of your handout, if you want to follow along with me in that. This gets at how we take this identity and apply it. Let's look at that together. Grace Fellowship Church serves the Lord as a local assembly of His body in State College, Pennsylvania. We seek fraternal relations with other churches for mutual edification and accountability. Because we are located in a transient community, God gives us a unique opportunity to impact the world for Christ. 
As God works through us to make disciples of Christ, he often calls our members to other places. Whether in state college or in the remotest parts of the world, our church embraces God's call to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So on your outline, you see two main sections. First, the call to be salt and light. And in that section, we're just going to talk about what does this text from the Sermon on the Mount mean? How does it apply to the church around the world and a little bit about how it applies to us as Grace Fellowship? In the second section, we're going to focus more particularly on our church and how to live out these ideas of identity that we've looked at. So let's, uh, let's jump into that first section there. Jesus has given us two images, and there are two images about identity. He says, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. An essence of these two identities, to understand these identities, we have to see that they are defined in contrast to the world. And in fact, in large part, Jesus defines these identities in negative terms. Because did you notice for both of them, he gave warnings. He gave warnings about how it's possible to start with this identity, but then to lose track of it. In other words, it's possible to have the identity, at least in part, but then to end up fading in the background. And because these are defined in contrast with the world, if you fade into the background, then your identity is lost. Let's look at these in turn. First one is salt of the earth. What was salt for? What was the purpose? We see, as it's mentioned, Jesus says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? One of the principal things that salt was for is to give zest, to give life, to give interest to the things that we eat, which is something we all appreciate, right? The... If salt has lost its saltiness, it's not accomplishing its purpose. If, it, if it's lost its taste, it's not accomplishing anything. Jesus is giving the warning to the church that you need to be have life. You need to have taste, interest. You should be exciting. It's, this should be something desirable. But the question I want to pose to us is, is this how we think about the church? Do you think about the church as the place in, among all places in the world where exciting things are happening, where the rest of the world is boring, but what happens in the church is where real life really happens? I hope you do, but there's a tendency to think differently, isn't there? In fact, I pose to you that there's a lie out there, a lie that floats around that's widely believed, and the best way I can summarize that lie is by saying that people tend to believe that sin is like chocolate. Sin is like chocolate. Everybody, or at least almost everybody, loves chocolate, right? It's, it's a delight to the taste. There's nobody who really thinks that chocolate is good for you. But then again, there's those studies that have shown that Dark chocolate, it actually, maybe it is, maybe it actually is good for you, right? And it tastes great. Uh, but, but on the other, yeah, we kind of recognize that you can't make your whole diet out of chocolate. So, sin is like that. Sin is enjoyable, this lie goes. Sin is, it's 
delightful. It's yeah, maybe it's not something you can make your entire diet, but but it won't really hurt you very much, right? You know, just a little bit is okay. Under this lie, the church is the place where people who recognize that actually no sin isn't isn't good, and we should abstain from this. People who say that are the ones who go to church. They're the ones who say, no, no chocolate, we should eat our vegetables. We should eat what's good for us, even though it doesn't really taste very good. That's what the church is under this conception. The problem, brothers and sisters, is that this is a lie. It's a lie because it has a completely wrong perspective of what sin is. Sin is not chocolate. Sin is not a delightful little harmless thing that we enjoy. Do you know what sin actually is? Sin is unkind words. Sin is unkept promises. Cutthroat competition. Sin is hateful exclusion. Sin is broken families, cruel exploitation, brutal violence, and slow and painful death. That's what sin is. Sin is not like eating chocolate. In fact, if you want a culinary analogy to sin, sin is not eating chocolate. Sin is like eating rancid, rotting meat covered with maggots. Brings nothing except sickness and death. That's the truth. The church is not where people go to subdue their tastes and to just take their medicine and eat their vegetables. The church is the only place where you can find true and satisfying life. That's what this image says. You are the salt of the earth. It means that the church needs to take up this identity. In the, a world of death, the church is an outpost of life. It's like the frontier outpost, the last bastion of true life in a world of death. And it's not because of us primarily. It's not because of things we do or things we don't do. But it's because of who we are. It's our identity. And who we are is the body of Christ. We're the people who are the body of Christ and the people in whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's what gives us life and that's what makes us the salt of the earth. Now, if this surprises you, if you haven't heard of the church talked about this way or if it's different from what you've experienced, honestly, I don't blame you because that lie that we talk about is fairly prevalent. But the truth is that the church is the place where we hate sin, yes, but more fundamentally, it's the place where we love Jesus and it's also a place that we like chocolate. I urge you, if this does describe you, if this is surprising to you, to take this opportunity to reconsider what you think of the church. If you're at a place in life, in fact, where you have perceived that other ways are unsatisfying, if it doesn't satisfy your taste of what you think life should be, take this opportunity to come to the church and really more to the point, come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who offers us life. He's the one who died so that we don't need to bear the whole weight of our sin on our own shoulders. 
And he died so that we don't need to taste the full foulness of our sin. He takes that away too. Jesus calls us to be salt of the earth. And that's the call of the church as well. That brings us to the second image. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. He also said, you are the light of the world. This world is a dark place, is it not? Jesus is talking about light as expressed in goodness, in good good works, he calls it. And it's worth reminding ourselves that the world is a dark place. It's particularly worth reminding ourselves, I think, because we're sheltered from the full darkness of the world in certain ways. We live in a country where just simple affluence shields us from a certain amount of suffering. And uh, we make sure those shields are there. You know, we close our borders so that we can have the standard of living that we're used to. And and honestly, if I might submit to us here in, in Grace Fellowship of State College, you know, we live in a place that's called Happy Valley. <laughs> and there's a lot of reasons for that, but really one of them is that this is a place for various historical reasons, economic, social reasons. We're shielded here from a lot of the things that even in the rest of the country are common experiences. So I hope that's a helpful framing of things as we think about the the need to be the light of the world and how dark the world really is. Now, before we go on with this, I want to make an important distinction. And that distinction is along the meaning of good works. There have been certainly some misunderstandings of what it means for Christians to do good works that have been taught over the years. And I won't go deep into that. Basically, what we can say is that when Jesus is talking about good works, he's not talking about what you can do to make yourself right with God. He's talking about things that Christians do because they are right with God. And the order of things is is significant. So we're not looking at a picture of, you know, you better go out and do good works so that God will accept you. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that this is your identity. God accepts you if you are God's people, if you put faith in Christ. God does accept you. So live it out. Go out and do good work so that people can see it. That's the important understanding of good works. Now, let's look at the warning that Jesus gives. We saw the warning about salt and losing its taste. The warning that he gives about light is of basically defeating its purpose by hiding it. And this is just an analogy that you can understand. Jesus tells us, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. This image of the church as a light stand that gives light is elsewhere in Scripture, if you remember the uh, the light stands, the lamp stands in the book of Revelation. You've seen this image already. So Jesus is saying, don't defeat the purpose of these good works. He's saying God has created us. God has worked in the church to do good things for a purpose. And he doesn't want that purpose to be squandered. So let's get a little more concrete. What does it look like potentially to hide your good works, to hide your light under a basket? Let me suggest a few things. Three ways that we can tend to take the light that God has given us 
and to waste it by putting it under a basket. The first of those ways is by pulling back from, from letting people know our thoughts, especially thoughts that might show what it me- what we believe about Christ, what we believe about God. Have you ever been in a place where you're in a conversation with somebody, probably a, a, someone who's not a Christian, and you realize that if you were to give an honest response or to share your opinion in what it is that you're already talking about, that that would show that you are a follower of Christ and you hold back from it because you're worried about what the person's going to think? That's one way that we can hide our light under a basket. We can we can hold back. We can keep under our vest the things that, that we truly believe, that we think. This takes a, a more expressed form in a second way of hiding our light under a basket, which is living in a pattern of life where we don't even spend time with people who aren't Christians. This is one that I confess is a pattern that's just all too easy to fall into. And it's something that we as a church need to watch out for. Because if you're a Christian and you belong to a church, maybe you also belong to a campus fellowship, those of you who are on campus, uh, or uh, other community with Christians, it can become really easy that all of our time that we spend with other people is maybe church activities or fellowship activities, going to Bible studies, things that are all good. But if you imagine this image of a dark world that needs light, but all the lights are huddled together in one place, certainly the, the light hasn't been spread out into the darkness of the world. I'll mention one particular opportunity that's happening at the church. I'm kind of importing this from the second section since it fits so well here. We've recently begun an outreach team here at Grace Fellowship. And one of the purposes of the outreach team is to help people who want to share their faith with others but who don't even know where to start, to give them a place to start. So if you hear an echo in your own life of what I've been saying about just kind of huddling just with other Christians, the outreach team might be a good place to get started. People you can talk to, I know, who are leading that, John and and Tom Hallman, would be people you can talk to about that. But let me cover one more way that we can hide our light under a basket that looks different from the other two. And that third way we can hide our light is to think that it's up to us to convert people. This, in a way, is the opposite. It's the opposite of not saying anything to try to share Christ with somebody. But it can squander our light just as much to think that it's entirely up to us. Did you notice the way Jesus said this? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The way this is supposed to work, according to Jesus, is that Christians do good works, but the Christians are not praised for those works. God is praised for those works. The problem with starting to believe that if if I don't save this person, then nobody will, is that that tends to bring the attention to ourselves. We tend to get in the way of our light shining through. And we set people up that we're sharing with if we're being over-forceful or overzealous. It's almost we're giving people the chance to say something like, yeah, I thought I saw a light there in you, but but then I couldn't see it because you were in the way. And that's not what we want to do. When, to, to use our other analogy, the salt analogy, when we think it's up to us, 
we can often end up tasting bitter instead of tasting savory. And in fact, sometimes we even fall into the error of thinking that it's good to taste bitter just for its own sake because we need to be light in the world. We need to contrast with the world. And so in that sense, these two images hold each other in check. Yes, we should contrast with the world in the way that bland food contrasts with savory food, but not in the way that awful bitter food contrasts with savory food. That's another way that we can end up hiding our light under a basket. Let's close this section by considering what happens, what's the cost of failing to heed these warnings? Because remember, these things, salt and light, are valuable by contrast. And if the contrast is gone, then the church loses its, its value in the world. And that's where these warnings come into play, of being trampled underfoot or having our lights hidden. One place this perhaps most obviously is visible, if you look around, uh, there are some churches where they've lost their taste, uh, they've hidden their light, and so they're just in a slow decline. The people who are already in the church stick around for the most part, but the, the average age of the church gets higher every year because there's nobody new coming in. And eventually it gets to the point where enough of the members have passed away that they can't pay for their building anymore and can't pay for uh, leaders anymore, and the church just has to fold. It's a sad thing that happens, and you look around, it's not too hard to find churches that are in that situation. It comes about because of losing taste, losing, in particular, hold of the gospel that makes us distinct. But there's a more sinister form of this, a more dangerous form, because it's a little harder to detect. It's easy to see that if a church's numbers are in steep decline, that something's wrong. But if a church's numbers are growing and people are excited, it can be harder to see that. For a church that has lots of activities, but lacks the gospel, but lacks a dependence and a desperation on the grace of God, a pervading sense among the members that apart from the grace of God, we would be utterly lost. A church that doesn't have that sense pervading its spirit, its, its ethos, is a church that has lost its taste, has lost its light. And, of course, the danger, maybe, yeah, you can say it's great, it's growing. People are happy with what's happening. But if the gospel is not there, people are not equipped to deal with the realities of life. When real suffering comes, the Sunday morning facade won't be suitable anymore. It won't answer the questions. And they'll have to look somewhere else for the answers to, why is this happening in my life? Or what do I do now that this suffering has happened? It also doesn't pass along the gospel to the next generation, which, of course, is a problem that you may have also witnessed if you've been around the church at all, is kids growing up in church and then losing their faith in college. Perhaps it was because they never had it in the first place because it wasn't there in the church. These are the warning signs that, that Jesus gives us uh, where our church could end up. And this is why we have phrased our principles the way that they are, because we are committed to not ending up that place for us at Grace Fellowship. It's not about the institution itself. We don't put any hope in the institution of Grace Fellowship Church. We put our hope in 
the Lord in Christ. And we hang our hope on that for the health of our, of our church. So with that, let's move along. We've, we've looked at these two images, salt and light, and what it means for our identity. Let's look at what the particular opportunities for us are at Grace Fellowship. Something that is easy to observe about the world is that it's a loud place. There is no shortage of people and companies competing for the attention of everybody, including everyone who lives here in State College. There's any number of people who who want to grab people's attention. But we have the opportunity to stand out, to be salt and light. We have that opportunity in our community. It's important for us to ask the question, what is it that we have to offer that people can't find anywhere else? And here by anywhere else, I don't mean just Grace Fellowship, I mean the church. Where, where, what can we offer the church more broadly that people can't find anywhere else? Is it our friendliness? That we welcome people well when they come to visit? Is that we have a great worship band and worship team and a great worship service? Is it the inspiring sermons that we have? That we have preachers who can keep people interested. Those are all good things. And indeed, we strive to do those things. But if all we phrase it as is friendliness, there are certainly places that do welcoming and friendliness better than we do. There are certainly places that do an awesome music experience a whole lot better than we do. Just go to any concert at the Bryce Jordan Center and you'll experience that. And even inspiring teaching and sermons. If it's just about motivation and excitement and interest, there's others who will do that better than probably we can realistically think we will. But... If what we offer is an incarnation of Christ to our community, or in other words, if what we do is give flesh to Christ, the body of Christ in our community, if we let our community who don't know Christ see who Christ is by living it out in our church, that will get people's attention. That will stand out from the crowd. That's why we point out in our church principle that we are a local assembly of the body of Christ. Grace Fellowship Church is part of the far-flung worldwide body of Christ, the people who, who love Jesus and who are faithful to him and through whom God works. We are one little part of that. We're, we have a mission to reach our little part of the world here in State College with the message of the gospel. Let's look at two ways to incarnate Christ, to give flesh to who Christ is. Those two ways are really pretty simple and pretty broad. I'm certainly not going to cover every aspect of these. These two things are love and truth. Love and truth. First, let's think about love. I noted a minute ago how the nature of our world with television and radio and internet and social media and everybody carrying one of these things around in their pockets, there is absolutely no shortage of places for people to give their attention. And people are busy. People have schedules that have them running from one place to another. But this is an opportunity because it's an opportunity to stand out as being different. 
if everyone else doesn't have any time to give to anybody, but we can give time to people and love them, that's going to stand out. So it could be something as simple as listening to somebody. Have you ever had the experience on either one end of the exchange or the other, either that you've been so blessed when someone really took time to listen to you, or perhaps that someone has commented on feeling so appreciative that you've taken time to listen to them? If you've experienced that, you may know that it really doesn't take a lot to get to that point where someone sees that what you've done in listening to them really is different from the normal course of things. And if we, motivated by love for people because Jesus has loved us, if we are ready to listen to others, to ask them real questions, to say, how are you doing, and to mean it instead of using it as something you say as you're passing somebody in the hallway, that's just this incredibly simple way that we can minister to people and begin to incarnate Christ's love for them. Similarly, we can serve people. Maybe it's not conversation. Maybe it's just doing something for somebody. That too really stands out. If you, especially if you perceive the need that somebody has and volunteer the service and not even just wait for someone to ask for help with something. These are practical ways we can love people and stand out as salt and light in the world. And as, as we look at it, I, I just want to get real and talk about what our lives look like and our busyness and our schedules. And I will definitely say that I include myself in this as much as anyone else. In fact, I probably see myself as being one who most needs to hear this. This will apply to some of you more than to others, but I think all of us have schedules that, that are busy. And brothers and sisters, busyness is a basket that will stifle our light as quickly as just about anything else. Because when we're busy, we're always facing the pressure of what's coming next. And when we're facing the pressure of what's coming next, we're just blind to the opportunities that are in front of us in the very moment. Unless we're planning on having the opportunity, which you can do sometimes, but a lot of the time those opportunities come up in ways that you don't see. And if our schedule is our master, cracking the whip, telling us, you know, you can't stop now to talk to that person. You need to get to this next thing to do. That's going to stifle the light that we could share with the world. What's our opportunity as a church? One particular way beyond just individually how we can love others and be a light to others, as a church, we talk about discipleship. It was mentioned in the principle that we read earlier, that our opportunity is to make disciples here and to impact the world for Christ. We have the opportunity to, in the period of time that someone is part of our church, to invest in them. And similar to the way that Jesus invested in his disciples. Jesus had a limited window of time. He invested in those men and then he sent them out. And you know something about ministry in a college town? There's often that same picture. It's often a limited window of time, whether it's undergraduate students who are with us for three or four years, whether it's grad students, whether it's just people who are moving here to get the start of their career and then move on somewhere else. There's a lot of turnover that happens. So we as a church, we've written that into our principles, this understanding 
that we have the particular opportunity to minister to people for a short window of time and then to send them out into the world. Send them out as missionaries in a similar way to Maddie went uh, to Europe this summer. We send people all over the world, all over the country and all over the world. That's a particular opportunity that we have as people are part of our body, as we minister the grace of God to them, we can then send them out and we can reach the world from this little church in State College. So that's love. Listening, service, discipleship, those are ways we can love people and be a salt and light to the world. The, uh, the second way to incarnate Christ is through truth. It's through truth. That's another thing that makes the church unique in that it has a true and full and satisfying response to the questions that people have about life. If you think about it, the most visible postures to the questions of life, the basic questions like, why am I here? What am I doing? How can I enjoy my life? The most visible are a couple of just superficial ways of responding. But they're the easiest to see. So people out there in the world, they'll look around and they'll see on the one hand, just this superficial cheeriness. Life is good. This is the posture adopted by everyone who's advertising anything for consumers. Because you want the product to make it look like your life is wonderful when you use this shaving cream or you drive this car. So that, that image is out there of life that's just wonderful and enjoyable and life is good. The problem is, we've already talked about this, that sin is real and the world is dark and life is not always good. And if that's your best response, life is good, be happy, or maybe a Christianized version of it, you know, just trust God or God is in control. That's not a satisfying response. But if we can give a thoroughgoing response to the realities of life, if we can answer that false cheeriness or the opposite of it, just kind of a cynicism that sneers at everything and, uh, and thinks that life is no good at all, then, then we can really give some real answers. Let's look at a couple ways we can do that. A couple of problems people face. One is suffering. Now, of course, the church does not have one simple answer for suffering. There's not one thing that you can say that makes suffering go away because it is real. But in the church, we do have an answer. And that answer is that Jesus suffered for our sake, as we said before. That Jesus took away the worst of suffering that is out there in the world. He took away the weight of our sin. And so even though, yes, there is real suffering in life, there is there is a God who, who knows about that suffering and who's not going to let it keep going indefinitely. God is going to make it right. Another thing we can give a real answer for is just real purpose in life. It's a question that, that young people often ask is, why am I here? What's my purpose? Our lives have purpose, again, because Jesus purchased them with his blood. Jesus loved us enough to die for us so that we don't live lives that are purposed just for destruction. And again, he's, he has given us life and he is coming back to make us, to make that life whole. 
Let me uh, give you a suggestion here. We're about to begin a sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're finishing the current series this week. Next week, we begin a series in Ecclesiastes. There's probably no better book in the Bible for dealing with questions of what is my purpose, why am I here, than the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have, if you yourself or if you have friends who ask questions like that, this is a prime opportunity to invite them to come and hear. And we are absolutely going to be gearing those sermons toward people who have those questions. You can't really preach through that book without doing that. So that's an encouragement to you. Let me wrap up by giving us the original example. We've talked about what it means to be salt and light in the world. We've talked about what it means to love others and to share truth with others. Our example of this, of course, is Jesus himself. Jesus loved people who needed his love. He loved the people who were the unlovable ones. He did not love just the people who could have helped him in his ministry, the influential ones, the ones who held the strings of public opinion. He loved those who were desperate and who needed his love. In that sense, he was, he, he loved others. He, he exemplified the love that we're talking about. He also exemplified truth. He preached a message that was sweet to those who were desperate. It was also a message that was bitter to those who were self-sufficient, who think they didn't need God. He was an example of truth. He contrasted from what was expected of him and expected from, by the world. And he did this at a great cost to himself. Those people that he didn't cater to, those people who were the ones that, uh, who did hold the strings of public opinion, but whom he infuriated because he didn't tow their line. Those were the people who killed him. But he went to the cross for the benefit of the church, for our benefit so that we can be salt and light in the world through him. Let's pray.